This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. Today, we invite another guest onto the show for our life science consulting special, Eric Haas. Eric got his BS in biology from Davidson College in 2017, and then a master of biomedical engineering from Boston University in 2021, and is founder and CEO of Ionic Cytometry Solutions, which he founded in 2020. Wow, that is during your master's, Eric, uh, to support high quality mass cytometric experimentation that he's going to tell us about today. So first, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, thanks for the great introduction. So before we jump into your company and consulting, take us back and tell us about your training. How did you go from college, majoring in biology, to choosing to attend a master's program, and then during that master's program, deciding to start a company? So I always wanted to be a biomedical engineer from when I really put some thought into what I wanted to do, like during high school years. But then I also wanted to play college football, and I wanted to go to a good academic school and play Division One football. So looked at a couple Ivy League schools, and then Davidson called, and I ended up going to Davidson and kind of fell in love with the place. It's kind of a crazy story how I got there. It's actually related a little bit to what I do now in a, in a weird way, but I actually got a call on a Thursday. My coach called me down in my office senior year of high school and said, this school wants to talk to you. They saw your ACT scores and are interested in your film. And so they invited me down for a visit that weekend or the following weekend. The following weekend was the Super Bowl. At the time, we always hosted a Super Bowl party. So that was out. So I called my mom and said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? There's a school that wants us to come down in North Carolina. She said, nothing. I was going to go visit my friend who was in the hospital with ovarian cancer, but her friend convinced her not to go. So I said, all right, well, let's go. So we drive down and it's a terrible ice storm, jackknifed trucks all over the highway. I, I don't know how we made it, but it took us like 10 hours when it should have been a six hour trip. And we stopped in Asheville, North Carolina, along the way to Charlotte, where Davidson is. And my mom, we visited with her friend and she got to see her friend. And then later that night, she actually passed away from her cancer. My mom withheld that from me from the, from the weekend until Sunday. We went, saw it, fell in love with the place. And then she told me that on Sunday. I was like, oh, wow, I have to go here. Like, I feel like I'm being called to be here. And that's kind of how I ended up at Davidson. And then once I was there, it all just kind of fell into place. I knew I wanted to study biology. Both of my parents were nurses and would always talk about medical stuff at the table, most of which I didn't understand at the time, but knew I wanted to do something in biology. Eventually applied for a PhD program senior year. Unfortunately, football kind of took a toll on my grades in undergraduate. So I didn't get in to PhD programs, which was at the time unfortunate, but now I'm kind of grateful for that. And ended up actually meeting my now wife in school too there. And she was at the time applying for schools for law school and ended up getting in at Boston University and getting a scholarship. So she went there for law school. And so I started looking for jobs, just a research tech position basically where 
wherever we were planning to go at the next step. And fortuitously, that the fall of my senior year, one of our coaches was talking to me and was just like, what do you want to do after you graduate? And I said, I'm not really sure. Something in cancer research, but I'm, I'm not sure yet. And he said, oh, well, my girlfriend runs a lab up at Dana-Farber, so you should reach out if you're, if you're interested. And so when the spring came around, he was gone. We had a different coach every year. So just him being there at the time was really fortuitous for me. So I called him up in the spring and when we figured out that Boston was on the list of places to go for us and asked him if I could talk to his girlfriend and get a job and hopefully, hopefully get a job. And, and we ended up going up and visiting in Boston. And it turned out that she was the director of the flow cytometry core. Shout out to Susan Lazo. She's an awesome lady, great core. And she said, if you're good for him, you're good for me. And ended up with the option to either work as a flow tech in their sorting facility or work in the Cytoff core, which at the time I was trying to look up information for Cytoff and there was virtually nothing online that I could find to try and prep for the interview. And so got there, saw it, saw that it was kind of an up and coming technology and there's a lot of opportunity there to kind of work with it in some of the earlier stages. And so I, I chose Cytoff. Then about two months after starting right out of undergrad as a technician, my Cytoff boss, who was the, she was the core manager at the time, had her baby and went on maternity leave. So I was sitting there running these two pretty fancy instruments, not really knowing what I was doing at all. So I lived on Cytoform and broke a lot of different glass components to the instrument and just kind of figured it out along the way. So I've always been kind of technically minded, which I think helps. Like I'm good with working with my hands too. So that definitely helped me in that role. And then ended up just kind of falling in love with the technology. I knew I wanted to get a higher degree. And like I said, I always knew I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. So at, at BU, there's actually a program called the LEAP program, which stands for Late Entry Accelerated Program in their engineering school. And basically it allows you to take what's effectively a stripped down bachelor's in engineering, and then you go on and take your, a master's in engineering on top of that. So I got into that program and started taking classes, like one class at a time for the first part of the program per semester while also working at Dana-Farber. And the spring of 2018, I, my boss left outright for another job and I got promoted to manager of the core, which was awesome and really just try to take advantage of that opportunity in the best way possible and grow the core's use and really understand the technology and the difficulties with it and the different pros and cons and what people needed help with. I did that and at the same time, I'm taking these engineering classes and learning about electronics and different physics, multiple different physics, a bunch of different mathematics and things like that, that really kind of tied in with the technology itself. So I really come from more of a technologist perspective on it. And that allowed me to get a really good understanding of how the technology works. And that kind of is the baseline of really using the technology well, I think. 
So that the classes plus any time a, a field service engineer would come in for for maintenance or anything on the instruments, I would just sit there with them and pick their brains as much as I could get away with. And they were super helpful and really taught me a lot about it as well. So that's kind of how I got to got to that point. And then after that, before the pandemic, I was already planning to kind of either take a leave of absence or just leave Dana Farber to take my master's. It's basically a year master's course. And I wanted to do that full time and just get it done. My wife, wife at the time had finished law school. So it was time for me to go to school, grad school full time. So I ended up working out a plan to leave in May. Something happened in between the February of 2020 when I founded my company in May that kind of threw everything for a loop, but there was nothing really going on in the lab. So it was kind of worked out for everybody to walk away at that time. It was actually kind of funny as an aside here. I I remember distinctly the day, the Friday before everything popped off with the pandemic. I think it was like March 8th or something like that. And we had heard rumblings that they might be shutting the labs down and sending everyone home. So I took took like an extra hour and a half after the day, cleaned the instruments really well, like spent time with them because I saw them almost as like my babies at the time and just spent some extra time. And I figured this might be the last chance I get to really interact with them. So And it, it was. So I'm glad I did that. I started this company on cytometry solutions. It was kind of on the back burner. I started to establish it in February of 2020. And then once I actually left Dana-Farber in May, I started ramping up, ramping it up a little bit, trying to figure out like market fit and everything like that and trying to make connections and keep some of the connections that I had already made while I was at Dana-Farber and just kind of get the ball rolling a little bit while I was in grad school. I ended up doing several projects for free during grad school, just kind of continuations of things that I had done. I started at Dana-Farber and just kind of worked with people really just to learn the process of having a company and working with different clients. So it kind of worked out. And then as I started, as the spring of 2021 came around and graduation of the, for the master's was coming up, started really kind of pushing the company a little more and basically had a trial year to see if it was a feasible thing to keep going or not. And it ended up being so. Got in with some good clients that I still work with today. And it's been it's been really good since then. Wow, that is quite a story. And it, the insight that you had on that Friday that you wouldn't be able to spend time with your instruments, that's that's almost amazing. I don't think that most people saw the pandemic coming in that kind of way. And I love I love this story because it seems like, well, there's two things. The first is that when there's things that happen in life that maybe you could perceive as bad, you realize that there often are silver linings. Like, well, I didn't get into this program, but I'm really glad I didn't because. And then the second thing I really like is there's this underlying message in your story that you can go into something not knowing all the details, but when you have an opportunity, you can just really jump in with four feet and learn by doing, ask a lot of questions and move your way up. So I have a couple of questions. When you were in the LEAP program at BU, what do you think was their expectation for the kinds of careers or jobs that their graduates would get after the program? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think the, a lot of it is an expectation for going into something like biomedical device design. I know a lot of the people in my cohort went into something like that or like testing biomedical devices. Or the section that I was in, since it's a master's of engineering and not an MS in engineering, it was definitely more focused on biomedical devices. And honestly, I, I thought that would add a kind of a, an interesting flavor to my education just because it's something that I think is really cool. And again, working with these complex technologies, it's good to be able to study technologies and knowing how to validate things and verification and just knowing some of those engineering approaches and then kind of trying to apply those to some of the more biological things, which ultimately are still kind of engineering in a way. So you think that for a lot of engineering programs generally, starting a company is not really a path that they educate you a lot on? Not right off the bat. Definitely not right off the bat. I mean, I think there's a lot of engineers that end up going to start companies, but a lot of times you work for a few years doing some sort of biomedical engineering or something. I'm very blessed that I was in a a unique position of being a core manager and then also taking these classes. So I had some real world experience under my belt, actually doing somewhat intense research, whereas probably half of the class that I was with were straight from undergrad. So they definitely needed to go get some experience actually working, build those skills up for sure. Gotcha. So you've answered this a little bit to some extent, but can you walk us through what it takes practically to start a company? Sure. So the first step, you need some sort of articles of incorporation or something similar. So my company structured is just a single member LLC right now. And actually, amazingly enough, at BU, they have a, a BU tech clinic, tech law clinic at the law school, which I knew about through my wife. And they actually help you with some of those initial paperwork steps and getting incorporated and set up. Technically, it's not incorporated, but getting that process rolling. So basically, you just have to have kind of a charter saying your company, what you're doing. And then you go to the secretary of state of whatever state you're in, file your articles of incorporation, or or in this case, it's an LLC, but similar concept. And then effectively, you have a company. So for $500 in Massachusetts, you can start your own company if you want. You just need to have a couple of pieces of paperwork in place before then. And then you have to, you send a, an annual report each year, just basically stating that you're still in business and has anything significant changed, that kind of thing. But from there, that's pretty much it. It is good to have insurance, obviously, if you have a company. So I have professional liability insurance just because of the nature of my work. Since we don't really do a lot of on-site things and don't have any, it's like an all remote company, really, there's no need for other source of insurance. So really, it's just the errors and omission kind of thing and just a general liability. So those are the biggest things. Obviously, then, of course, you need a bank account and it's good to establish that and establish business credit. But beyond that, those are pretty much the main primary steps. And then, especially in today's day and age, it's good to have a good website and have an email address associated with that website. So you can go and buy domain names for pretty cheap 
for a long time, you can keep them. And then you get a domain, you get your website set up, have your email set up, and then you're pretty much off to the races from there. Easy enough. Okay, so you provide services consulting for mass cytometry, but let's take a step back. Let's assume that our listeners don't know what that is. Can you tell us a little about the science? Sure. I've kind of started to branch into other areas too now, other areas of cytometry, but cytometry, study of cells, right? Cyto being cells, metry being the measurement. So that's effectively what it is. And I guess most of the listeners are more developers. So to break it down a little further, traditionally, most people have done research with flow cytometry. So what that is, is you take a single cell suspension. So let's say you take, you draw someone's blood and then you want to look at the different cells in there. So a lot of times it's, you're looking at the immune cells, specifically you'll you're here colloquially like the white blood cells, which we also sometimes call PBMCs or peripheral blood mononuclear sites. And these are things like your T cells and your B cells and monocytes and dendritic cells, things like that. The traditional approach has been with flow, which is fluorescence-based cytometry. And what that is, is you use antibodies that are specific for certain proteins on or within the cell that are conjugated to fluorophores. So like some of them come from different algaes, like there's a green fluorophore that comes from green algae. So they take that, those chemicals and bind them to antibodies. And then you can measure this fluorescence on a flow cytometer that has a series of detectors and lasers, which essentially cause this excitation of different energies effectively, which you can measure on the cytometer itself, so the detector. Mass cytometry takes that another step. And there's also something called spectral cytometry, which we can get into too if you want. But mass cytometry is where I started. And what it does is it kind of combines the flow cytometry approach with a mass spec instrument. So what it is, is you take your antibodies, oftentimes similar antibody clones as with flow cytometry. Instead of conjugating them to a fluorescent probe, you conjugate them to isotopically enriched metals. The range on the detector in, in this system is from about 70 up to about 220 Daltons, so atomic mass unit. And you conjugate your antibodies to the metals, and then you, again, it's a, you usually have a single cell suspension that's labeled with these antibodies. It gets introduced into a plasma, actually, one cell at a time, ideally one cell at a time. Sometimes you can have doublets gets introduced into an inductively coupled plasma, which then ionizes the cell and all the antibodies and everything else that's with it at the time. These cells then be stop becoming cells and they're destroyed basically, and they become an ion cloud. And the ion cloud then it goes through a series of focusing steps and filters to filter out any of the biological isotopes. So things like carbon, potassium, things like that, those low mass elements get filtered out through a quadrupole. And then the ion cloud continues through the mass spec, goes into a time of flight chamber, which basically measures, that's where the TOF and CYTOF comes from, basically measures how long it takes these ions to traverse a certain distance. And based on how long it takes, 
you infer essentially the mass of the ion. Then they get hit the detector, which is kind of like an electron. It, it basically sends electrons out, and depending on how many electrons out, that's basically the intensity of that certain isotope effectively without getting too deep into it. And then that gets exported out essentially as a giant Excel table. It's really, it's called an FCS file, which is flow cytometry standard file. And it's basically a big matrix of data by each cell, or we call them events before they're actually pre-processed for data analysis. And then, yeah, you end up with these samples. A lot of the use cases, just to kind of put kind of a face to it, so at Dana-Farber, obviously there's a lot of cancer research. So a lot of the use cases there are things like, for instance, I worked on the Keytruda study before that was approved, which is a CAR T-cell therapy, which we can get into too, because that's one of my favorite topics if you want. But basically you take samples from patients either before or during or after all of the above while they're undergoing a therapy and you are essentially trying to measure the changes in their immune system over the course of that treatment. And this technology is really cool in that it allows you to look at up to 35 to 50 plus parameters at a time at a, on a single cell. So you can really separate your different immune populations like the cells I mentioned earlier. You can really phenotype them to a deep level and you can also look at what they're doing functionally. So you can look at what populations are present and then kind of what activity they're engaging in. And that can give you a sense of what's happening in the immune system, how they're responding to a certain therapy, or if there's changes in different therapy or different populations over time. Oh, that is so incredibly cool. So this technology is helping us understand health, disease, discover new therapies. Can you explain to me the context for which someone might be able to, for example, if they have something wrong with their immune system, be able to get benefit from this technology. So for example, are people only getting exposure to it through studies? Are there approved procedures that are in hospitals for using them? Where do we draw the line between like what sort of research and experimental and what is being practiced in medicine today? Mm -hmm. Good question. So right now, CYTOF is still research use only technically. There are ways and methods that people are trying to get it into the clinic. I saw a paper that was published recently, I think from overseas, of where they're using CYTOF to kind of predict response to therapies. And so that's kind of one aspect that I think has promised clinically is to basically use this to get a huge snapshot of someone's immune system before they go into treatment for a certain disease. And then based on their immune signature, if you have enough data, obviously you could say, okay, we, we know these immune signatures are more likely to respond to this type of therapy. So that's an area where it could be clinically useful. Traditional flow is used in clinics. So when you go to the doctor and they order like a complete blood count or something similar to that, what they're doing is they're sending your blood to a flow cytometer that has effectively like an eight color called eight color eight protein panel that can kind of detect your major immune population. So there are some clinical applications for that. Again, Cytoc isn't quite in the clinic yet, but it may be eventually. So what are the costs in terms of money and time for, to example, get an immune signature for one person? So there's two sides, two sides to that answer. 
On the one side is the actual instrument and the supporting infrastructure itself. That is a little bit more expensive. That's why a lot of times you see these in cores or well-funded pharma companies or biotech companies. But basically you have you need the instrument, which can range anywhere from 250000 to half a million dollars. When Dana-Farber got them, I think they were closer to a million dollars because they're still new and really high tech for the time. And then you also need supporting infrastructure. So you need dedicated exhaust fans for these instruments. There's a chiller that comes with it, which we actually moved labs shortly after I took over the core and ended up putting these chiller units in a separate closet just because they make so much noise, like over the OSHA decibel warning system, I would guess. And then you also need liquid argon for that as part of the infrastructure. So the plasma is actually made from argon ions. So you need some infrastructure on that front. Once you set it up, it kind of pays for itself in the long run. And then from a sample perspective, it's relatively compared to flow. It is a little bit more expensive, but the amount of data that you get, I always say the cost per data point that you can have is a lot cheaper than flow, just because again, you can run 50 parameters in one sample, whereas in traditional flow, once you start getting into the teens, like 15, that gets really tricky for flow. And you also need a lot of controls and all this stuff, single stain controls for flow, for compensation, which you don't need in Cytoff. So from that perspective, I would say average cost from what I've seen and worked with to for, a, let's say you're a biotech and you want to run Cytoff on some samples and you want to go to a place that already has samples set up or uh, the system set up and everything in place, you're looking at anywhere from like 900 to probably 15, 16, sometimes even $2,000 a sample, just depending on the complexity of the sample itself and the complexity of the panel and the staining workflow and everything like that. So it's a pretty laborious process, but again, the data you get out of it is really high quality and very in-depth. One does not simply make plasma. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you need that infrastructure in place for sure. Okay, so now let's talk about your company in context of this technology. Maybe it makes sense to talk about who your customers are. So we work with a, a wide range of different customers, ranging from academics to big pharma and CROs, small biotech. So one of my main customers is a CRO out in Portland, Oregon called Serona DX. And they have a whole suite of different technologies that they use for supporting their pharma clients and biotech clients. So any anywhere from just traditional like bulk genomic sequencing to Cytoff, we now have a SciTech spectral flow cytometer too, as well as different imaging and spatial omics techniques, which is another kind of flavor of Cytoff. There's a thing called imaging mass cytometry, which is pretty cool. A little bit outside my wheelhouse, but I know enough to know about it. And then also working with people, like we published a paper with one of our academic client collaborators last spring at City of Hope National Cancer Institute in California, looking at CAR T cells and how they change depending on the compartment where they're located in the body. So those are really cool applications. A whole variety of diseases, 
a lot of cancer research. CAR-T is starting to be more and more looked at with CYTOF. And then also inflammatory diseases, obviously. Anything basically that is kind of cell-based, which a lot of diseases could be looked at in this context. How important is publishing papers for the reputation of your company? I think it's pretty important. It shows credibility first and foremost. It also shows some of our services. So in a way, it's almost like marketing material for us. I mean, I've sent the paper that we've published and publicly available online to prospective clients just to kind of give them a sense of what we can do and what kind of analyses are available. It is important. It's, it's good to see that these services are actually contributing to something too, which I think plays a role. And it really, for me personally, it, it gives me a sense of pride that I can have a connection and a hopefully have some sort of impact in some of these cutting edge projects that I'm working with people on. When you look across the projects, and actually when you look across different domains, there's often different speeds of development. So like I work at a national lab and things like fusion last year, they tend to happen slowly over decades. If you look at the work that you do, how would you describe sort of the speed of innovation? Do things take on the order of years, decades, et cetera? Like everything, and the answer to any, this this question gets often asked with clients, it depends right? So it depends on the complexity of what we're doing. For instance, the paper I was talking about earlier, that took us like six months from starting the project to getting the paper ready for publication, maybe eight months or so to having the copy ready to send out for publication. So that was a quicker thing. And again, it just really depends. So like a discovery type project where it's preclinical or it's a translational study, those can be a little bit shorter in the time frame of developing. Like those can take anywhere from three to six months, depending on how fast the client wants to move. Usually for clinical type studies, there's more verification experiments involved and being able to qualify the assay before you go and use it in clinical trials. So that's that's an important step. And those usually take a little bit longer, but we have a system down now where, again, depending on the level of validation and verification you want, we can do it in three to six months. And then your panel is ready to go and you have you have trustworthy data to show that it's working well and that you can really trust the results you're going to get when you go on and start analyzing patient samples. That's kind of the development there. There's one project that I've been working on that's been going on for a year and a half at this point for development, and that's just because there's some longer time points for some of the validation experiments there, like freezing the sample. What, how long does it stay preserved while it's frozen to be able to analyze and get the same results later, which is obviously important for longitudinal studies, right? So things like that really depends, but there's a a few things that you should do for every cytosol experiment, really any cytometry experiment or anything like this. First, obviously you need to start with a good panel design. You hear that you can do 50 markers in one panel, but it is important where you put the proteins in terms of the atomic range of the system, because some, there's a mass response curve that has a higher response kind of in the middle of the range, closer to the end, but in the middle, that's usually reserved more for your kind of low expressing proteins. Some of the functional markers work better in there. 
just because they can be kind of variable. There is an importance in the panel design. And then once you have the panel designed, you need to titrate your antibodies. So the concentration of how much antibody you're using per whatever volume of cells you're staining is important to do. Just again, so you can know that your panel is working well and you can trust the results. And titration is a really important step that a lot of times I think gets overlooked when people just rush into things, but it needs, it needs to be done for sure. And then usually you can get, depending on what the project is going for, right? You can get away with going straight from a titration to like a full panel optimization, I like to call it, where you're just testing out the workflow of the lab. You're using the whole panel. You're kind of replicating what you would be doing for the actual study samples by using some sort of donor samples and control and making sure that everything is working as you would expect that the lab team is comfortable with that protocol. And then from there, if everything checks out, if you're doing, again, if you're doing a discovery type of project, you could probably get away with going into staining your samples as long as everything looks good. A lot of times it's important to, especially for clinical trial type projects, to include some sort of precision testing. So doing an intra-assay and an inter-assay study, just to make sure that you're when you stain the same sample multiple times that you're getting the same results or roughly the same results within a certain window of variability. Okay, so it sounds like there is a lot of attention that needs to be placed on panel design, uh, different procedure. And you notably said earlier to me, you said, oh, I'm, I'm not really a developer. It'll be interesting to talk about this. If you step back, I'm wondering, what is the relationship between what you do and not necessarily technology like machines, but software? The crux of ICS's services really come down to the data analysis, and we provide like a tailored data analysis. So there are some solutions out there that are pretty good, and if you want a quick, easy method of here's everything that we know in advance that we want to look at. There's a lot of really great solutions out there, like Astrolabe is one. It's a great solution for getting immunophenotyping from your data. It really is. What we provide is a little bit different. It's more of a tailored analysis. And with that, we do use a lot of different softwares. I learned a little bit of R, which is, of course, the language of a lot of biologists in college, taking a biostats class, which is really fun, really great class. And so I use R somewhat, but I also use a platform called Omic. It's now owned by Dotmatics, which is also a graph pad prism for the other kind of wet lab biologists out there that would know that. And it's really nice to use. A lot of people are familiar with Flojo, which is also good. Omic is great because it's a cloud-based software. So a lot of times if you don't have a strong enough computer, if you're running something on the desktop with hundreds of thousands to millions of cells, and you're trying to run something like a dimensionality reduction algorithm, it'll take ages to run. Whereas with Omic, things tend to run a lot faster just due to being in the cloud. And it has a lot of different kind of algorithms built in. And another thing that's really nice about it is that you have fully auditable workflows. So you choose each step in the analysis along the way, and it, it really makes you think more about what process you're going through as you're analyzing things. So for the data science work, what would you say are sort of the bread and butter methods that you use? 
I have some slides on this actually that I like to share with people, but usually I break it down into six main steps. So the first is the quality control and troubleshooting. So when you look at the data, you can see if there was something wrong with the instrument or something wrong with the staining or the sample itself, or if just the while the sample was being collected, if there was a clog, you can see it in the data. So that's kind of the first step always is to QC it. This is done just through manual, it's called manual gating and visualization. So this takes us from our total collected events down to our analyzable cells, which are usually live, intact, single cells. So that's kind of the first step. The next step, there's usually always some sort of manual gating involved of effectively, these are just filters that you place by looking at these plots, biaxial plots. So let's say you want to separate your B cells from your T cells. Well, you would put CD19 on one axis and CD3 on the other axis. CD3 being a marker of T cells, pan T cell marker, and CD19 being a pan B cell marker for the most part. And so then you compare those and you say, okay, these are CD3 positive, but CD19 negative. Those are our T cells. That's our kind of parent T cell population. And then over on the other axis, it's the CD19 positive, CD3 negative cells. And those are our B cell parent population. So there's always usually some sort of manual gating, again, just to kind of name the different, filter out the different populations that people want to look at to begin with. I call those the definitive measures. And then in a lot of cases, there's things that I call potential measures that come up that are kind of interesting signals that you find in the data that you want to dive into a little deeper. One way of doing that, and usually the next step in these sorts of analyses, are dimensionality reduction and clustering. So dimensionality reduction, I don't know how familiar everyone is with that, but effectively what it does is it takes whatever parameters you feed into it. So let's say you're feeding it 30 parameters of your data. It will take those and look at the similarities between the different events based on all those parameters. And it kind of plots them on a two-dimensional plot. And this is really good for visualization and kind of a qualitative look at your data. It's not great for really drawing any sort of definitive conclusions from. But if you look in any paper with cytometry today in it, you'll see some sort of dimensionality reduction, whether it's TISNY or UMAP or something like that. So it's similar to a PCA. PCA is kind of like a one of the original versions of this, but these are kind of more advanced algorithms. That's one component. And then the next that often kind of goes sort of hand in hand with that is clustering, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but there's various methods for that with this type of data. One of my favorites right now still is Flowsum, which is, again, kind of takes a similar approach, looks at all the features of your data that you tell the algorithm to look at and will group cells together depending on how similar or dissimilar they are from other cells in the data set. So what this does is this allows you to look at potentially populations that you wouldn't otherwise see in the data, where manual gating, you're basing it off of literature and what you know as the definitions of different cell types, right? Clustering doesn't care about that, really. It will look at all the parameters you tell it to look at, and it will automatically gather those cells into distinct clusters so that maybe you can find some sort of interesting biomarker signature or some sort of population that 
again, you might not capture through manual gating, but is relevant to what's going on in the samples or in the patients over time. Gotcha. Yeah, and TSNI and UMAP are beautiful. I can understand why they appear so much in papers. They also are, I think, usually provided via open source libraries. How or does open source software play a role in your data analysis work, whether to be using it or your company? Have you ever decided to maybe like release a package? Honestly, as far as coding goes, I'm more of a know enough to get by sort of coder. I do know enough to get around things. A lot of the, the main analysis, again, is done in OMIC, which is, has a GUI, uh, online GUI, which is really convenient. The way I approach it is more, how can I get things done as quickly as possible and without trying having to learn some a steep learning curve where it can all be done in R, which is, of course, all open source. Again, I just am not comfortable enough with all the packages in R to fully implement them. But I do use R quite a bit for different statistical analyses and figure generation. So that that plays a big role. So a lot of the figures are made with like ggplot, which is a great open source plotting tool that's relatively easy to learn. And if you're if you need to make really customizable figures for things, it's a really fantastic tool. As far as implementing our own pipeline, let's say. I mean, that's something that I wouldn't be opposed to in the future, maybe. I'm currently a solo shop, so I don't have the bandwidth to do that right now. But it's something that would be intriguing just to try and help people, again, utilize these technologies a little bit better. Awesome. I love ggplot too. I was always really disappointed that Python, Python has a lot of ways to plot stuff, but like nothing was ever quite that good. You know, like you can add all kinds of different little features in it and plot two different sorts of plots over each other. It's so nice. Exactly. I had a horror story recently where I was using, I won't name the library, but I was using a library that uses matplotlib under the hood. And because I had to sort of add another feature using matplotlib that didn't really sync with the library, it messed up the colors in my legend. Thankfully, I <laughs> caught it because I was like, this is wrong. But I, you know, I put my hands to my head and I was like, oh my God, this should not be allowed to happen. How many people have run into this same issue? So shout out to ggplot for just like not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's a listener that is listening and they're like, oh, this sounds so cool, this kind of work, what advice would you give them to follow this kind of path? I would say start in like if you can get a job working as a technician, like if you're young, let's say if this is for like someone in undergrad or something right now, get a job as a technician and really, if you're like learn the technology, if you learn the technology well, then you can be an invaluable resource later on. It's a bit of a different path, you know, than like a traditional PhD where you're focused on a research project and you're doing a lot of different sorts of technologies and you know enough to use them, but this kind of path is more, again, kind of focusing on one thing and getting into it deeply. And then once you know that, then you can kind of go on to sort of parallel technologies. But I would say for me, working as a technician in a core and then ended up running that core was super valuable for this. I definitely wouldn't feel comfortable or have the same level of expertise with this sort of thing if I hadn't done that, if I was, you know, just working as a technician in a lab, like a typical research lab setting, you don't get that same level of experience just using and understanding the instrumentation itself. So I think that's one way to get into it for sure. 
I think that is fantastic advice. My first job out of college, I was a research technician too. Not to say what awesome. I that I know what a research technician one is, but I was a number two. So we're coming up. <laughs> we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. What is the most interesting thing that you've learned about the immune system? I mean, I think the most interesting thing to me, it's all interesting, honestly. The more I learn about it, the more I just am blown away and just in awe and realize that I really, we really don't know anything. But I would say that the way that the immune cells interact with each other and the way that they're able to, it's almost like they sense things that are going wrong. Obviously, this is done through different proteins that interact and different signaling molecules too, like in the blood, you have different cytokines and everything which can signal, oh, there's a, there's a virus here, we need to go attack it. Really just the interplay, the dynamics of it all and how heterogeneous everything is. So that's one of the big challenges too for, let's say, a hot term nowadays is precision medicine and things like precision oncology. And while I do believe that's the future of this field and it'll be extremely beneficial, it's very challenging because everyone's immune system is different. So it's almost like a fingerprint, right? But probably even more complex than that, I would argue, is your immune system. Everybody's immune system is so different. Obviously, there's ranges of things, but every system is unique and they all rely on this crazy complex dynamic interplay between all the cells. That to me is one of the biggest, one of the things that's the coolest about it. And with that, how even though you have this complex interplay and a lot of times everything works out how it should, obviously you get diseases and cancers where it doesn't, but the fact that it most of the time works well together and you have this insanely dynamic system is pretty fascinating and remarkable, really a miracle. And with that, you have these individual cells that are almost their, they're kind of their own autonomous living units, if you will. And they have their own signals and their own needs and metabolic needs and different expressions in of themselves that the fact that they do work together is just wonderful. And the fact that you can kind of, again, one thing I'm really passionate about is CAR T cells and like cell therapy. And the fact that you can take out a patient's blood cells engineer them to go and attack a cancer is incredible. It's a really amazing technique. And obviously there's still a long way to go before anything is cured, let's say. I know it's kind of taboo to use that word as a biologist, but I do believe that in the coming decades, we'll see more and more success stories with engineered cell therapies where a patient's blood is taken out, their cells are cultured and then engineered to go and attack things. I think that is the future for therapeutics, really. It's a much more targeted approach and it can enable your immune system to do the work for you. I love that. It, it truly is astounding. And I'm also kind of taken away by sort of the complexity of it all. When you aren't working, what do you like to do in your free time? Again, being like a small business owner and one-man shop, I don't have a ton of free time, but I do enjoy hanging out with our dog. We got a German Shepherd puppy, and she's the sweetest, Athena. She's a lot of fun. And one place I take her, so it's kind of not, not working, but we actually have property down by the Ohio River, and we bought this last year, and it was completely 
covered with honeysuckle, which for those of you that aren't familiar, it's a crazy invasive species that was brought here in the like 19, early 1900s and has just grown and overtakes all the forests in the, the Midwest for sure and probably elsewhere throughout the country, similar to kudzu in the South. And it is just chokes everything out. So in my spare time, when I'm not doing analysis or working on the company, I go down to the, to the property and work on removing all the honeysuckle and trying to bring the forest back to life. That's been kind of my go-to for the last year or so. And then so that's kind of where I get my exercise. I also love going to the gym and just like staying fit. But yeah, the reforesting the land is something that's very much a passion project of mine. Oh my gosh, you're fighting the honeysuckle. I feel like honeysuckle yeah. is one of those plants I've heard of, and I imagine it to be like this cute little delicate honeysuckle flower, but you're like, no, it's an absolute <laughs> monster. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the flowers do smell incredible, and you can actually, like, you can take them and eat them a little bit, too. So growing up, we would do this. You take the end off, and you can suck them, and that's why they're called honeysuckle, because if you suck it, it kind of tastes a little bit like honey, but they are pretty plants and that's why they were brought here in the first place but they're super invasive it's really cool now since we've we've cleared off a decent amount of the property at this point it's like six acres of land a lot of it's wood when i got down there to start and this is this is true for any sort of endeavor whether it was starting my company or like anything that you're doing or starting in the lab at, at dana farber i had a similar experience starting at the property removing honeysuckle where I got down there the first day last year and just stood there and just thought, I don't even know where to begin. It was just so dense, so crazy. And I was like, okay, I just, I just have to jump in and start somewhere. And then along the way, you see the progress and it really adds up. So it's like a, it's a good instant gratification thing. But yeah, they're very invasive. They can grow to be 20, 25 feet tall. Some of the ones down there are six inches in diameter plus sometimes for the really big ones. Most are not that big, but there are some that get really big. The reason they're so bad really is they kind of choke out the native ecosystem. So they keep moisture closer to the ground level because they kind of make this shorter canopy of the forest, which causes more moisture on the ground, which then causes the trees to have mold, and moss and things grow on them, which can damage the tree trunks actually, and can cause the trees to die. They also block out some of the natural wildlife. So what's been really cool to see as we've progressed is that a lot of the native wildlife species are actually starting to come back to the land. Like for instance, there's hawks, new hawks coming around because they actually have lanes where they can fly and see the different ground creatures that are their prey. And then also removing the honeysuckle gives the ground creatures new habitats to actually live. And you can really see, sounds a little crazy, but you can really see that the trees are happier without the honeysuckles around them. They're, they're able to reach up more and spread their canopies a little bit more. And they just look greener and healthier and like they can actually breathe now. So it's been really fun to see that. Oh, that's really cool. You have forever changed my perception of honeysuckle from a cute little flower, <laughs> like a monster plant that like you go in the woods and you wrestle with and, you know, roar yeah, in the, the sky. Yeah, the only way to get rid of it. Yeah, for sure. And the only way to get rid of it really is you have to uproot it. You have to take it out by its heart because if you cut it, a lot of people will cut them. They just grow back. They're the most resilient plant 
around here, honestly. Like they can be crushed by trees falling on them and still be growing up new shoots. And again, you cut them, they grow back pretty quickly. So you have to uproot them. Eric, it has been a pleasure having you on the show today and hearing your story to create a company. For our listeners, this is the second guest we've had to talk about life sciences consulting. And we hope you're learning about more of this interesting corner of the developer and science landscape. And Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm looking forward to chatting again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Anytime. I can go on soapboxes about just about anything for a while. So I love talking about this kind of stuff and just love conversating about interesting topics. Awesome. And we might take you up on that offer in the future. (laughs) 